if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Acts chapter 25. We're going to go back and continue our study through the book of Acts. We just got a few more weeks, and then uh, we will jump into, we'll jump overboard into Jonah. How about that? You saw what I did there, right? Jonah is next, but we'll, we'll finish Acts in just a handful of weeks. This morning, we'll be in the first few verses of Acts 25. In 1971, 25-year-old Richard Phillips was arrested, tried, and convicted of murder in Michigan based solely on the false testimony of a sole witness. A witness who later it was discovered had not only lied, but they were the one who had committed the murder. But that truth only came out 45 years later. 45 years, Richard Phillips was in a prison cell knowing that he was innocent. One of the most dramatic examples of criminal injustice in our country's history. Have you ever experienced any kind of injustice in your life? Injustice simply means a lack of justice, something that is not just, something that is not fair. One of my clearest memories as a child, and quite honestly, it haunts me, it has haunted me as a father that this is one of my clearest memories as a child. But it was when I was the recipient of unjust treatment at the hands of my own father. I was about 10 or 12 years old. My dad had just returned from work. And he was one of those dads who hated what he did. And and sometimes that came home with him. As we passed each other in the hallway, I gave him a gentle, playful nudge, as I would often do. We often for thousands of times before, had exchanged those playful nudges. But this time was very different because for reasons that I'm still unaware of today, nearly 50 years later, my father just flew off the handle. He threw me up against the wall, struck me, and he said, you're never going to treat me like one of your buddies again. And I never did. Now, I can tell you that I was the recipient of a good bit of corporal punishment as a young boy, and I deserved every bit of it, and I was thankful for every bit of it. Truly, it helped to shape me into the man that God wanted me to be. It gave me boundaries and discipline that I needed as a young man, but I can tell you that on this one instance, I was innocent, and I can say without question or hesitation that I didn't deserve that treatment. And my father was unjust in delivering it to me. And I didn't quite know at that age how to communicate that to him. And I regret to say that it continued to be unresolved for years. Have you ever experienced injustice in your life? A time in which you had done no wrong, you were innocent, you 
had not committed any wrongdoing, and yet you were wrongly blamed, maybe even punished for something that you didn't do. What about as a believer? Have you experienced injustice because of your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord? Paul did, and that's the setting for this morning's passage. The context for this passage came at the very end of chapter 24, which told us that Paul remained in prison for two years, falsely accused, wrongly incarcerated, had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving punishment, and yet he sat in prison day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And how he responds to that injustice helps us to navigate how we are to respond to injustice should the Lord ever require us to experience it. Let's read chapter 25, and we're going to limit our time this morning to the first 12 verses. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask in Jesus' name that you'd speak to your flock this morning, speak to your people, that you would remind us that you are still at work even when we are in the most dire of situations. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would speak to us from it now, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this story picks up right where we left off. If you recall, after Paul finished all of his missionary journeys, he brought the gift that he had collected from the churches in Macedonia, the offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. 
And while he was in Jerusalem, he gets arrested there in the temple. They bring false charges against him. He ultimately stands trial before the Sanhedrin, the the great council of the Jews there in Jerusalem. As a result of what happens, the Roman tribune allows him to escape out of that mess there in Jerusalem, and he gets to Caesarea, where those Jews follow him, and he continues to stand trial. There, Then before Felix, who was the governor before Festus, and Festus, even, or Fest, Felix, even though he knows that Paul had done no wrong, that he was not deserving of punishment, he keeps him in jail day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Returning to him periodically, and in those periodic visits, Paul makes the most of that and shares the gospel with him and reasons with him about faith in Christ. But the motive on the part of Felix in those visits was in hopes that Paul would give him a bribe, would offer him money as he had offered the offering to the saints in Jerusalem. But as the bribe never comes, Paul is never released and he remains in prison for two years. Felix ultimately pulls the last straw in his dealings with the Jews and causes so much chaos that Emperor Nero fires him as governor of Judea and appoints Porcius Festus, who now comes on the scene. And Paul's been in prison for two years. And even in our text this morning, continues to be falsely accused, brought up on trumped-up charges, and is within a hair's breadth of being sent back to Jerusalem to stand trial before the Jews, which would have been a death sentence for him. Injustice after injustice after injustice for Paul. I wonder, how would you have responded? How would I have responded if if I had been in Paul's shoes? I think at some point we may have become a bit bitter and resentful of what had happened. And perhaps a deep-seated hatred would begin to grow in our hearts against those who had perpetrated this injustice against us and done us wrong. And we might even begin to look for the first opportunity that presented itself for us to get revenge against them. At first, we might be hopeful that truth would win out. Surely, surely truth would win out here, and we would be exonerated and released. But as days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months, and months turned into years, at some point, we would be tempted to give up all hope that truth would win out, and perhaps we would even give up ourselves. Somewhere along the line, we might even blame God that he had either forgotten about us or that he just didn't care. But how should God's people respond when they are recipients of injustice, whether it's injustice at the hands of a parent or our friends or our boss or people around us, or government itself? How should we, as those who call Jesus our Lord, how should we respond when we experience injustice? As we look at Paul, 
and how he experienced one injustice after another, not just in this passage, but quite honestly, all throughout this closing section of the book of Acts, as we see Paul arrested, beaten, accused, wrongly incarcerated year after year, injustice after injustice. This is not so much an exposition of just this one passage, but really a summary exposition of all of this closing section of the book of Acts. And as we see Paul experience one injustice after another, we can learn how we ought to respond to injustice should the Lord require that of us in a way that brings him glory. The outline this morning is borrowed in large part from fellow pastor Josh Tancardo, who pastors up in Pittsburgh. He exposited this passage. I've adjusted the outline and added a few and changed a few, but six reminders this morning of how we can respond when we experience injustice. And the first is the most important, and that is to remember that God is still at work. Remember that God is not absent. He hasn't forgotten you. He's still there, and he's still at work. Paul had been in prison there in Caesarea in chains for two years. Two years, 24 months, with no end in sight, by the way. It didn't appear like this was going to end, and it doesn't. If you recall back in chapter 23, after he had stood trial before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and the Roman tribune comes and kind of pulls him out of the chaos of that, they go back to the barracks, and he's in chains, and what happens? Jesus shows up to him. Jesus shows up to him in the barracks, and he stands by him, and he says to Paul, Jesus says, take courage, For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, that had to have been encouraging for Paul. For at that moment in his life, for Jesus to show up to him and said, Paul, I got you. I got you, Paul. And I'm going to make sure you get to Rome because I want you to bring the gospel to Rome. That, That had to have been encouraging for Paul. And if you recall, things began to look brighter right after that. His young nephew found out, found out about the plot to kill him that the Jews had come up with there in Jerusalem. And they get word to the Roman tribune. And the Roman tribune assigns nearly 500 soldiers to escort little old Paul out of the danger there in Jerusalem to the safety in Caesarea. And then as we saw in chapter 24, the previous chapter, while he's in Caesarea, he's given opportunity to have gospel ministry both publicly and privately. But then days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and months turned into years. And now it had been two years since Jesus had told Paul that he was going to Rome. Had he forgotten about him? If not, where was he for those two years that Paul sat in prison? I'll tell you where he was. He was where he always had been, doing what he had always done. 
God was seated on his throne in control of everything, orchestrating not only Paul's life events, but all of the circumstances of the universe to accomplish all of his good purposes. You see, when we suffer injustice, the flesh, the natural man, apart from faith, thinks that God is either absent or doesn't care or is somehow incapable of preventing the injustice or worse, he's not there at all. When in reality, he's on his throne, in control, and he is still at work. In chapter 23, when we looked at that very similar story that we see here in chapter 25, there, there, there's, a, there's a plot to kill Paul, and he, gets, uh, uh, he, he, he escapes from that plot by the Roman tribune escorting him out of Jerusalem. Very similar to the story that we have here, and they end up in Caesarea. But when we looked at that back in chapter 23, we called that providence, Remember? And we said that providence is when our God uses natural laws, His natural laws in creation, to accomplish His good and divine purposes. And when we went through that, we recalled the story of Joseph and his brothers and how they sold him into slavery. Joseph had done nothing wrong. All Joseph had done is he had worn a colorful coat that his dad had made and he had interpreted a couple of dreams. But he was innocent of any wrongdoing, and yet his brothers threw him in a pit and left him for dead, only to return later, find out that he's still alive, and so they sell him into slavery, his own brothers. Later, as you recall in Joseph's story, he gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and as a result, thrown into prison in Egypt. And whether it was in the pit in Canaan or while he was in shackles on that road trip to Egypt with the slave traders or while he was in prison there in Egypt, he had the opportunity to blame God. He had the opportunity to get mad at God and even abandon faith in God. But somewhere in the midst of all that, Joseph learned a valuable lesson that he ended up teaching to his very own brothers later. When his brothers later discovered that that Joseph had become second in command in Egypt and they owed their very existence to their brother's kindness because of the famine and, and he had charge of all of the storehouses of food in Egypt. And they, their very existence was dependent on their brother's kindness. And so as a result of that, they were afraid when they found this out. And rightly so, because they were the ones who had committed this great offense and this great harm to their brother. But Joseph said in that setting when they found this out, don't be upset with yourselves For God is the one who sent me here. Isn't that incredible? He he tells them, you did not send me here. God sent me here. 
And later, after their father died, and, and, and the brothers thought, well, now that dad's gone, Joseph's really going to let loose on us. Dad, dad was kind of a buffer for Joseph's anger. Now he's really going to, to get us back. That's when Joseph said what we looked at last time. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. There was an intention on the part of Joseph's brothers when they did what they did, and their intention was evil. But, Joseph says, there was also an intention on God's part when he did what he did in that, and his intention was not for evil, but for good. You see, God was there with Joseph in the pit. In the midst of that injustice, he was there as Joseph was shackled to the slave trader's wagon on the route to Egypt. He was there in the prison cell with Joseph in Egypt. He was there. He never left him. He never stopped working. And eventually, in his perfect timing, he worked everything out according to his perfect plan. And the same is true when we are called upon to suffer injustice. Whether it's the unfair punishment of a parent, the false accusation of a friend, the unjust decision of an employer or a courtroom or whatever it might be, God is still there, he's still in control, and he's still at work. It might not feel like he's there, but he is. It might not look like he's at work, but he is. In his sovereignty, see God's sovereignty is not limited by anyone or anything. And in his sovereignty, God can even use the injustice of sinful man to accomplish his good and divine purposes. And church, don't we see this most vividly portrayed at Calvary? For there, the perfect son, the sinless savior of the world, the spotless lamb, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, was falsely accused, wrongfully punished, and needlessly and unjustly crucified, executed for no just cause. And yet, what does the prophet Isaiah say in Isaiah 53, in that great prophetic portrait of the suffering servant who was to come? After recounting that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. After that, the prophet says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him, his son, to grief. In his divine sovereignty, God used the injustice of sinful man perpetrated against his blameless son to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So when we see Paul here suffering in prison, falsely accused, wrongfully incarcerated, we ought to be reminded of our Savior who did this for us. And when and if we are called upon to suffer injustice, however great or small, we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. But we're also reminded that God is still there. He's still in control and he's still at work. 
See, even though it had been two years for Paul, God wasn't absent. He was there. He was at work. He was orchestrating, among other things, a divine appointment where the Apostle Paul would have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the king, as we'll see in the very next chapter. Even in the midst of injustice, God is still there and God is still at work. Just as he was with Joseph, just as he was in the tomb, so he is at work in our injustice. So don't blame him, don't doubt him, and don't give up on him. Instead, trust him. Trust him in the midst of that. There are five more reminders of how we're to respond to injustice. But to be quite honest, this this one makes all the others pale in comparison. It is by far the most important. If we don't learn and apply this truth, then all of the others are just band-aids on broken arms. In the midst of injustice, God is not absent. He's still there. He's still sovereign. And he's still at work. Nothing has changed with God. But secondly, we're also to leave vengeance to God. We're to leave vengeance to God. Again, if we put ourselves in Paul's shoes here, he's unjustly incarcerated. He's been in prison for two years. We'd probably be wanting some payback by this point. We'd be wanting to, to met out some revenge. But we don't see any of that in Paul. In this passage or in any of the other passages in this closing section, as he suffers injustice after injustice after injustice. If one thing is true about Paul in this closing section, he remains calm. He doesn't act rashly or he's collected. And he's trusting that if there's any vengeance to be meted out, that that's God's job, not his. Even when we saw him potentially lose his control back in chapter 23, Remember as he's standing before the Sanhedrin and they're falsely accusing him and the high priest tells somebody who's standing next to Paul to punch him in the mouth, slap him in the face. What does Paul say? He says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Paul may have lost his temper there a bit in name calling, but even when he does so, he recognizes who is responsible for vengeance. He doesn't strike back. He doesn't say, I'm going to get you back. He says, God is going to strike you. Just a few months prior to this, Paul is with the churches in Macedonia, and he writes a letter to the Romans, and he writes about this. And he says this in Romans 12, verses 17 through 19, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought. Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here's the hard part. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, quoting from Deuteronomy 32. So now Paul's being given an opportunity to put his own teaching into practice here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples And said this in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. 
When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, those were the Pharisees who had been teaching this. But Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus for me to follow. And I think it goes starkly against our culture. If you hit me, I'm probably going to want to hit you back. If you wrong me, I'm probably going to try to exact a pound of flesh from you. You cut me off on the highway, well, we won't even go there. What does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. Don't just give them your shirt, give them your cloak. Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Here's the problem with that. The problem with leaving vengeance to God is that God doesn't always exact revenge like I would want him to. I want revenge now. I don't want any delays. I don't want any second chances. I want swift and complete revenge right now. But if I'm walking closely with the Lord, it's at about that point where the Holy Spirit whispers to my spirit, are you sure you want swift and complete revenge right now? Are you sure you want no more delays? No more second chances? Because, Ken, that is not how I have dealt with you and your offenses against me. And the heavy conviction comes. Church, when we experience injustice, we're not to seek revenge ourselves. That's the Lord's prerogative, not ours. And when our flesh demands revenge, when our flesh longs for vengeance, payback against those who have committed injustices against us, we should consider the injustice that our Father has endured because of our own actions and our own offenses against Him. And we should be thankful that He doesn't met out justice as we would. Again, we see this most vividly portrayed at the cross of Calvary. As Jesus hung on his cross and he looked out at his executioners, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They had beaten him, whipped him, planted a crown of thorns upon his brow, spat in his face, and nailed him to a cross. And he was 100% innocent. He was the most innocent person who had ever lived. And he was given the most severe penalty one could ever be given, death by crucifixion. But he wasn't just the most innocent person who ever lived. He was also the most powerful person who ever lived because he was God. And so he had at his disposal the greatest potential for revenge that any man who had been who had received injustice had ever had at his disposal 
And he could have called down a legion of angels at that very moment to wipe out his executioners, but he didn't. Instead, he said, Father, he prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In that statement, Jesus was, I think, going beyond leaving vengeance to God, and he was loving and praying for his enemies. And that's the third thing that we learn about responding to injustice, to love and pray for our enemies. In that passage that we read from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, just a moment ago, where Jesus says to turn the other cheek, right after that, Jesus says, also, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do we see this in Paul? Well, maybe not in this passage explicitly, but certainly throughout this entire closing section of the book of Acts as he receives injustice after injustice. Paul, the apostle, is far more concerned with the condition of his captors and his accusers than he is of himself. Again, just a few months earlier, he had written to the Romans and he said in Romans 9, verses 2 and 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul there was, was giving voice to his heart that he loved his fellow Jews so deeply that, that, that if it took him being cut off from Christ in order for them to be connected to Christ by faith, he was willing to do that. So great was Paul's love for his fellow kinsmen, the, the Jews. He loved them and he cared for them. And it was this love and this concern for his fellow Jews that, that, that compelled him, <coughs> that drove him to preach the gospel so clearly and plainly and boldly on the streets of Jerusalem, something that he was now paying for dearly. And we see his concern for Felix and Drusilla in chapter 24, as he reasoned with them about faith in Christ over and over again. And in the next chapter, over the next couple of weeks, we'll see his love and concern for Festus and King Agrippa as he does the same. And he appeals to them to come to faith in Christ. So we're not to seek our own revenge. But Scripture goes one step beyond that and not only tells us what we're not to do with respect to those who treat us unjustly, but also tells us what we are to do, and that is to love them and pray for them. You know, as difficult as it is to turn the other cheek, I think this one's more difficult. Love your enemies. and Pray for those who persecute you. But it makes sense to me that Jesus would put these two together in the Sermon on the Mount because it seems as though these two things are mutually dependent on one another. Because you can't pray for someone and seek revenge against them at the same time. If you pray for someone, what begins to happen? Well, your heart begins to soften. You begin to see them through God's eyes. You begin to see them as people who are made in the image of God. However marred and stained with sin that image is, it's still there. They're people made in the image of God. And as you continue to pray for them, you begin to grow in your love for them, loving them as God loves them. 
And then you can't help but turn the other cheek when and if they strike you. And so perhaps a practical application for us this morning would be to consider one person in your life that has treated you unfairly, that has treated you unjustly, and begin to pray for them this week. But really pray for them, not imprecatory prayers, not to pull out the imprecatory psalms and, Lord, strike them down, show them justice. But really pray for them. Lift their name up to the Father and pray that they would know Him, that they would love Him, and that they would be conformed to His Son's image by faith. If we begin to do that with our enemies, who knows how God would begin to shape our hearts to mirror His, to where we would even begin to love our enemies as Jesus commanded us. Fourthly, we're to have a clear conscience. Paul says in verse 8 here, he argues in his defense. He says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. In other words, I've done nothing wrong. Paul is above reproach in his life, his ministry, and his teaching. He has a clear and clean conscience. And that's important because there is a huge connection between our life's testimony and our lips' testimony. And if, we, if what we say with our lips isn't matched up by, by our lives, if there's a disparity between those two things, then it will negatively affect our gospel witness. That's why the Jews are trying to discredit Paul, so that people will stop listening to him and his teaching. See, we need to remember that we have an enemy and our enemy is going to do whatever he can to try to damage our witness. And the brunt of that assault will come in the form of temptation and compromise. Because if he can cause us to fall morally, then he will effectively silence our gospel witness. Because Nobody will listen to the testimony of our lips if the testimony of our lives is telling a different story. So the more faithful we are in our gospel witness, the more we can expect our enemy to turn up the heat. And we need to be mindful of the fact that there, there is a lost world that is watching us, is watching our lives, and, and, they're, and they're looking at our lives much more than they are listening to our message. And we can either reinforce our witness with how we live or we can damage our witness with how we live. Paul had a clear conscience. He was above reproach in both his public and private life. And so his gospel witness was, in the end, unassailable. Fifth, we're to actively pursue justice. In verse 9, we're told, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem? And there be tried on these charges before me. See, Festus, turns out, is a people pleaser. And in an attempt to try to please the Jews, he is willing to let Paul go back and stand trial in Jerusalem. Now, he knows full well that Paul had done nothing wrong. Certainly nothing deserving of punishment. And yet he was willing to let him stand trial before these Jews in Jerusalem, something that he had to know would have been a death sentence for the apostle. 
again, injustice after injustice for Paul. So how does Paul respond to that offer? Okay, Uncle Festus, whatever you want to do, if you think that's best, let's go back to Jerusalem. Whatever you want, Festus, no. He stands up for truth and for what is just. In verses 10 and 11, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. This is quite bold of Paul to be saying this to the Roman governor of this province. If then I am a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus replies to him in verse 12, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. You see, as a Roman citizen, Paul had every right to appeal to Caesar and to stand trial eventually in Rome. And so Paul does everything within his power lawfully to defend not only himself, but his right to continue to proclaim the gospel. If you recall back in chapter 22, when Paul asserted his Roman citizenship before the Roman tribune as a way of justice, we noted then that Paul was using any and all lawful and peaceful means in order to defend the gospel. And we talked about at that time how we also should do whatever is lawfully allowed to defend our rights and the rights of others to continue to defend and proclaim the gospel. And we said that there, there really is a missional drive behind our defense of religious liberty. That as Christian citizens, it is not simply our right of speech as an American citizen, but it's about our obligation to the Great Commission to be a witness for Jesus that ought to compel us to defend religious liberty through any and all lawful means. And I still hold to that, that this is primarily about defending the right to declare the gospel so that the good news of Jesus is proclaimed to all. However, I think there's more that should be said here. And that is that our God cares about what is just. And he expects his people to care about that as well. Injustice, whether it is a man being an innocent man being incarcerated for 45 years or two years, or whether it's a teenage son unjustly treated by his father just because he had a bad day, every injustice committed by sinful man is evil in God's eyes and should be opposed by God's people. Paul being in prison for two years for absolutely no reason whatsoever was wrong and sinful and evil in God's eyes. And God's people should oppose such injustice. This is why we ought to utilize any lawful and peaceful means to fight against abortion. Because it is an injustice to the unborn. It is evil in God's eyes and ought to be opposed by God's people. All injustice is evil and an affront to the gospel and ought to be opposed by God's people. Now, the problem arises when we begin to talk about what exactly is injustice. 
What is it that is unjust in our world and society? There's an entire category today of supposed social injustices. And those who fight against them are, are called social justice warriors. And it's largely taking on a negative connotation. And much of that negative connotation is well-deserved. Because much of what is considered social injustice is not truly unjust. Some of it is. Much of it is not. Some of it is simply perceived injustice. In some cases, any kind of unequal treatment or unequal outcome is considered an injustice. And that kind of social injustice is more about socialism than injustice. But there is genuine injustice in the world today. And we as believers in Christ and followers of the king shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Whether it's Christians being imprisoned in China or sent to concentration camps in North Korea. Or whether it's parents being forbidden from having any input on the kind of education their children receive in the public arena. Or whether it's, as we said before, the, the, the right to life being taken from unborn children. Or whether it's the possibility of racial injustice. Perceived injustices are not injustices, but real just injustices are. And when they're seen for what they are, they ought to be opposed by God's people. Because they're evil in his eyes and an affront to the gospel. And Paul here is a good example. It was unjust for Paul to spend two years in prison for no reason whatsoever. And then to be sent back potentially to Jerusalem as a death sentence to take stand trial before the Jews. That was wrong. That was an injustice. And so it was something that should be opposed through all lawful and peaceful means, which is exactly what Paul did here. And it's what we should do when we see real, genuine injustices in our world today. But here's the thing. In the end the reality of injustice in our world ought to point us to the gospel. Because injustice is simply another consequence of the fall. If there were no sin in the world, there would be no injustice in the world. And our God has made provision for sin. He's made a way for sinful man to be reconciled back to him. He's made a way for sin to be dealt with once and for all. And that way is through his son, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus's perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection, those who trust in him are forgiven, given his righteousness, and they are freed from the penalty that they deserve. Sin is dealt with once and for all through Christ. And because of what Jesus did at Calvary, and because of his promised return to come, one, come back one day and rule forever in the new heaven and the new earth, we have the promise of an eternity with no injustices. 
You see, try as we might to oppose injustice in our world, and I think we ought to try to oppose it, with a reminder that our primary occupation is the proclamation of the gospel. But we ought to oppose it. But try as we might to oppose it, it will never go away. We've studied the book of Revelation together, and we've learned that it's only going to get worse. And so our hope is not that we will, by our opposition to injustice, usher in some kind of golden age of goodness and godliness. But rather, our hope is that Jesus will come back. And that when Jesus comes back, he will wipe away every tear. And there will be no more pain. And there will be no more suffering. And there will be no more injustice. And so the final way that we are to respond to injustice is to set our hope on future glory. This is one thing that we see about the Apostle Paul all throughout this closing section. He's calm and composed. He's not rash or anxiously reactive. He is confident and courageous. How can that be? He wrote about this in his second letter to the Corinthians that he wrote just prior to to the writing of the book of Romans when he was with the churches in Macedonia just a year prior to this. And he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison. And then verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're, 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 they're passing. They're, they're going away. They won't be here forever. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's confidence in his in eternal inheritance was rock solid secure. He knew that was what awaited him in glory. And that when Jesus returned, the, the, the injustices that he had endured during this season of his life, th these things that he calls light and momentary afflictions, will be but a, a, a fading glimpse on the horizon of eternity and will be far outweighed by, as he calls, an eternal weight of glory, that which awaited him and that which awaits all those who trust in Christ alone for salvation for Paul his response to his injustices are all about the gospel and they're all about his love for Jesus here's the apostle Paul languishing in prison week after week month after month year after year and he recalls what Jesus had done for him he was a persecutor. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He would go from house to house, town to town, taking out Christians, hauling them off to the high priest's court and casting his votes along with the other Pharisees that they should be executed because of their faith in Jesus. He was a bad guy, a heart full of sin and treachery. And Jesus showed up to him on the road to Damascus as he will recount before King Agrippa in the next chapter. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? 
And in that moment, Jesus reveals himself to the one who had persecuted him and his children. And Paul falls in love with Jesus and comes to faith in Jesus. And so as he's languishing in prison here, he had to have thought, Jesus is worth this. He's worth this. It will be just a couple years later, as he's still in prison, this time in Rome, when he'll write to the Philippians. And he'll say, I don't know if I'm going to keep on living or if I'm going to die. But to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Friends, that's the only way. If God ever calls upon us to suffer injustices at the hands of government or whatever, that we will make it through that faithfully. That if we love Jesus like Paul loved Jesus, that we are floored by the grace that we have found in the gospel as Paul was, it will sustain us no matter what injustices come our way. And we'll be reminded that he's still with us and he's still at work and he's still using us to live as Christ, to die as green. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word, and we thank you for the example of your servant, Paul. Father, I pray that none of us ever is called upon to suffer the kind of treatment that your servant, Paul, endured. But Lord, should you require of that, Father, would you give us a faith equal to his? Would you give us a love for your son, Jesus, equal to that of Paul's? Would you floor us of the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, as we find him in the gospel, as your servant Paul had, so that we'll be faithful. Our faith will be waved in the midst of that trial. We will see it as a light and momentary affliction, and that as heavy as it might be in that moment, it is far outweighed by an eternal weight of glory that will come to us when you are revealed in your glory in the new heaven and the new earth. Prepare us for that day, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.